0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you, Bill. Thank you very much. I see friends here, so I'm very happy um, to be speaking with you today. And Bill gave me this grandiose title, uh, Spiritual Care, the Future of Hospital Chaplaincy. I feel like I should be in an echo chamber when I introduce that topic (laughs) the future of hospital chaplaincy. Um, Bill is a wonderful friend and he invited me to speak today. <clears throat> he's also um, got a trait that I really truly admire. He's, he's incredibly willing to serve and uh, that's a trait that I, I really look for in, um, in people that I work with in the hospital setting and he's uh, a true servant. Um, and he's, he's also really humble um, he sits with a small group that my husband sits with um, in fact he's actually the leader of it they gave him his because he's so humble they gave him a little button that it said um, the most humble yeah so he wore it to the next sit and so they took it away from him yeah Anyway, um, if, if you wouldn't mind, he's going he's gonna to be my, my person. I'm going to point at him. Yeah, he's, doing, he's not going to work with me now. <laughs> so this is kind of at an angle which I kind of like, because I'm sort of tilted like this too. <laughs> um, no, that's okay. <laughs> I like it that way. Um, the outline for what I'm going to talk about today, uh, we're going to start kind of with the individual and you might, after that grandiose introduction of me, um, who am I and why am I talking to you? <laughs> um, secondly, the individual. So we're going to start with the individual and then kind of get bigger and bigger and bigger. So we're going to talk about spiritual assessment, uh, this particular model of intervention, and research, spiritual assessment, uh, well, actually, spiritual care research, which is an interesting field these days, and how healing happens in relationship. Um, And then hospital chaplaincy, which is what a lot of you are interested in, um, and how that's integrated into a system, how it brings added value, and being the servant to all. Um, And then administratively, a larger system, the hospital itself. And then nationally, um, the Joint Commission is a body that accredits hospitals to do um, the work of healing uh, because they're regulated as a system. And also, they require hospitals to provide spiritual care. Some of you may not know that, which really works in our favor. Um, And professional chaplaincy, the professional organizations, which are bodies that uh, advocate for spiritual care across the country and also um, are promoting research in spiritual care. And some of you may know that the Dalai Lama is very interested in research, um, particularly around mindfulness and meditation. He's very into science. So um, actually, let's go back to the outline, because um, we're going to show the PowerPoint in a few minutes when we get to um, hospital chaplaincy as it integrates into systems. So we're going to step away from the PowerPoint for a few minutes, okay? Because um, my whole what I'm going to say is not entirely on PowerPoint. What a relief that is. <laughs> so um, let me begin by um, talking for just a sec using a, a shiny object, an iPhone. <laughs> I'm very attached to shiny objects because I'm a follower of Jesus. And <laughs> no, no, he probably wouldn't have approved either. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> But I find them very convenient. Um, so this morning, I uh, <laughs> was having a quiet time um, with him, and, <laughs> pardon? He texted. No, actually. <laughs> One of his servants does, though. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of his servants that have written things, surprisingly. And um, so one of his servants is named Parker Palmer. And he also wrote, along with another one of his servants, called um, Frederick Beekner, And they had something to say this morning that I really liked, which is relevant to calling. And some of you are discerning whether chaplaincy is really a calling for you. So Parker Palmer said this. Our deepest calling is to grow into our authentic selfhood, whether or not it conforms to some image of who we ought to be. As we do so, we will not only find the joy that every human being seeks, we will also find our path of authentic service into the world. True vocation joins self and service. As Frederick Buechner asserts when he defines vocation, as the place where your deepest gladness meets the world's deep need. Where your deepest gladness meets the world's deep need. Biegner's definition starts with the self and moves toward the needs of the world. It begins wisely where vocation begins. Not in what the world needs, which is everything, but in the nature of the human self, it what brings the world self joy, it what brings the self joy, the deep joy of knowing we are here on earth to be the gifts that God created. So um, I was really privileged to um, to find out um, my vocation in service um, when I was only very young. Um, I knew I wanted to serve people, and I thought perhaps it was in the field of psychology, but. I always had a sense of God's presence with me. And um, it felt like God was calling me to serve people um, in the community uh, of those who follow Jesus. And so um, I felt that I might have the greatest opportunity to serve um, in the community of faith. Um, There weren't any role models for me of women in that service of um, people who were ordained, but um, the doors opened for me uh, to do that anyway, and um, as the doors opened, I pursued education in that realm, and I got a master's in divinity. Um, And the community it was not just an inward calling, it was also an outward calling from the community that confirmed that call. So I ended up um, in North Carolina being ordained in 1981, and I was only the uh, seventh woman ordained in that setting. Um, naturally, there weren't you know, a lot of enthusiastic people in congregations in those days, but in the Methodist Church, um, it wasn't a matter of the congregation bringing you there. It was a matter of the bishop sending you there. So it wasn't a vote by the congregation to have a clergywoman. Um, in my naivete, uh, <laughs> um, I was enthusiastic and optimistic. And so um, I went to serve people and began uh, visiting them alphabetically. <laughs> And um, I did not know um, that there was any opposition to my being there, which was a good thing. That's a good thing about young people. (laughs) So um, anyway, I served churches for about 10 years, and there was some opposition um, because it was the South. And um, there's a certain amount of of, uh, sexism and... Um, you know, there, there are certain uh, what I might call um, systemic um, sin um, in the world, um, you know, patterns of oppression. Anyway, I encountered some of those. And the interesting thing that I found after 10 years of serving in congregational life was that the most meaningful form of ministry um, was not talking with the Grandmother's Club or leading the confirmation class. It was serving where people were in crisis. It was ministering where people were in the midst of a health crisis primarily. And three afternoons a week, I would hop into my car and travel from one hospital to another to visit people when they were in the hospital. And that was where I felt that my greatest joy met the world's deepest need. That was where, in the words of Frederick Buechner, I felt like um, I was sailing true north and I found peace. And, you know, when I held a child who had just been born with a congenital heart defect and baptized that child, you know, and comforted the parents... That, and, and they held the child, and I was there as the baby died. That was where I felt I could be with people in the midst of a horrible tragedy, and yet I could be with them, and perhaps in some small way um, provide a, a greater, t- I could alleviate suffering in a little bit, in a small way and perhaps um, help them uh, find comfort in the holy there. And that was sacred to me, and that was important to me, and I felt like that was my calling. So I pursued a residency in CPE, that is four units of CPE, clinical pastoral education, and training. And to me, that was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And to me, that that was... an eye-opener, because I had had CPE when I was in seminary, but I didn't like it, (laughs) because I wasn't ready to look at myself. I wasn't ready to seek that kind of self-awareness that I found in CPE. And I reread, you know, at that point, um, my evaluation from the CPE supervisor. And you know, she was right about me. (laughs) She was really right about what she wrote. But I wasn't ready to hear it when I was in seminary. Ten years later, you know, I was open to hearing. And I found the, the CPE then very, very helpful. And I reflected on the 10 years of, of ministry I had done in the congregation. And it was really, really helpful. And I was ready then to do some reflecting on myself and to be open to getting some um, input into how I was serving people and some of the interpersonal dynamics that I had that were getting in the way Of serving people better. So I liked it so much, I thought that this process of education was really significant. I went on to do supervisory training. Um, I moved to San Francisco to do that. I worked at a hospital here. Um, Several hospitals later, I'm back. I worked at several different hospitals. I think I'm on my sixth or seventh hospital now. can't remember. (laughs) Haven't counted lately. And I'm working at UCSF Medical Center. So I've worked at all these levels, all of them. Um, So I guess that's why Bill asked me to come and (laughs) talk. And um, so I'd just like to offer uh, those perspectives to you today. So that's why I'm here. and I'm engaged in research right now, which is really um, probably my most excited place in all of this. Um, I'm still excited about what we're doing as in our department, but I'm jumping up and down about the research that we're doing too. So um, I'm eager to get into it. Um, any questions right off the bat? What kind of research? Spiritual care. The model that you have in your hand is what we are researching. Yep. So I'm going to talk about that research and introduce you to what we're doing with that, with advanced cancer patients in palliative care. Yes? Will this PowerPoint be made available? Oops. I'm almost at the end of my tether here. <laughs> I just felt it. I, I just felt it pulling at me. Yes. Could um, you repeat that?
1: The will PowerPoint. The,
0: will the PowerPoint be available at some point? It can be if you're willing. Yeah. Yeah, Bill can. Bill is going to email you then two things. He can email you the PowerPoint, and once you've seen it, maybe you don't want it. But <laughs> that's my insecurity speaking. There, I just observed that thought. Hmm, what do you know? Um, we could talk about that, like a maybe. Like <laughs> we can, we can. You can reflect on that and give me feedback later. That's right. Um, so uh, you, you you can definitely have that if you would like that. Um, Does Bill have all your email addresses? Um, That's good. Um, Make sure he does because there is a handout that is humongous. um, And you may want this. It is a literature review of the state of spiritual care research. Um, And this is a summary of all the spiritual care research that's been done up to this point. And... um, the research that I'm going to talk about is um, one of six Templeton grants that was given out in June, and we got one of them, um, to do spiritual care research on this model uh, of um, spiritual care that we use at UCSF. And it's, um, it's my model. Ha! Huh. What do you know? And um, I'm, I'm working with that, and... Uh, And we are working with that. We're studying advanced cancer patients in palliative care using this interventional model. And so I'll talk about that a little bit in a few minutes. Okay? So any other questions? That's what we'll be working on. So NHO doesn't have something like this yet or anything like this? Pardon? National Hospice Organization doesn't have No, no, (laughs) no. It hasn't been published yet and it hasn't. It's been taught to a lot of CPE students that have gone through our program and it's been taught in various forms at um, Tom Harshman's program. And uh, I guess his is more hope-based, though, right? Or is it more? No, he uses um, attachment theory more. Peter Yuichi Clark has used it more hope-based if you've had them as CPE supervisors. And St. Francis probably uses it, too. But it's, it's not in wide use yet, we're going to be publishing in the next couple of years. So, Anyway, you're getting it hot off the press. Yeah, we just published the table in June. And you can see copyrighted. That's brand new. <laughs> so you're, you're one of the first groups to see it. So that's kind of cool. And, and you can get this from Bill, the um, summary of the literature. That's brand new too. So, okay, the next thing. So. I'm not going to say a whole lot because I understand that you had a Jennifer Block teaching about sustainability a little bit this morning, self-care. No, you didn't? No, I, um, ah. not spoke this morning. You spoke this morning, sorry. I knew that you spoke this morning, and then I read on the website that Jennifer was going to speak also on self-care, but I was completely wrong. That was last year. Was last year. What do you know? Okay. So I'm wrong. There you go. I'm wrong. I should say that at least once a day, at least. More than that is, is good too. Okay, so um, one of the things that's really important is sustainability. So I was gonna do a little piece on self-care, but I think a lot of people know about self-care um, and self-care practices. It's especially important if you're doing a lot of caregiving for others. Um, I would say most of us in um, chaplaincy know about self-care. We all know what self-care practices are. Um, what are some of the self-care practices that you do? Speak, please. Yoga. Yoga, yeah. yes. Other things. We're actually supposed to do self-care. <laughs> <laughs> supposed to read about it. You, yes. Read about self-care is not the same as doing self-care. Yes. Other people, what practices do you do? Yeah, journal. Journaling is very good. Gardening, Gardening is excellent. Yes. Yeah. Meditation yeah. practice. Okay. Exercise. Baths. baths. Yes, candlelight and baths. Walking the dog. Loving kindness. Loving kindness. <laughs> friends. friends, talking with friends. So, two of the things that you just mentioned um, are mentioned in a study as being the most optimal things to reduce stress for um, chaplains who work in palliative care and um, physicians and nurses who work in palliative care, and that is journaling and expressive writing and um, sharing with others. So those two practices are considered the most de-stressing things that people can do. Um, not distressing, but de-stressing. So um, those two practices, it's been proven to be the um, kind of the antidote to the stress of caring for the dying. Um, so those are things that is, is, are extremely um, useful. But we all know self-care practices, and it's actually the difficulty of practicing them when in our busy lives that is the issue. So whenever we do um, debriefings for staff, which I'll talk about in a moment, um, it's the encouragement that we offer to people to actually practice the um, extraordinarily difficult thing to practice, which is self-care. You had a question or oh, comment? I, I do Tong Lin, uh, and that uh, I send um, um, healing energy to people. I always include myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I find that very helpful. Yes. Good. Good. Sorry, I'm late. Mm-hmm. Very good. And. Um, so that's about sustainability. One of the things that I appreciate about having Buddhist students in clinical pastoral education is that some of them come with a lot of self-awareness, um, not uniformly, but um, some of them do come with a great deal of self-awareness. I think um, therapy helps with self-awareness also. Um, the more aware you are of your interpersonal dynamics, the better uh, caregiver one can be. Um, It is the projections that we have on others that get in the way sometimes of being a good caregiver. Um, The reactivity that we may have toward others um, contributes to our lack of compassion sometimes, our lack of uh, empathy toward others. Um, And so self-awareness is is really, really helpful. Um, The attitudes, values, and assumptions that we have that are unexamined those things uh, can get in our way as caregivers also. Um, and that's, that's the importance of training. So clinical pastoral education is kind of, is the most useful training uh, for chaplaincy. Um, it's been the most recognized one, and um, I recommend the ACPE route, the Association of Clinical Pastoral Education, because it is the kind of gold standard clinical pastoral education Um, that there is. So um, if you have an opportunity to do clinical pastoral education, that's the type of program that I would steer toward. Um, Why? Um, Because it it has um, accountability. Um, The supervisors have um, accountability um, ethically and they can be brought up on charges if they're doing anything inappropriate. Um, It's also nationally recognized um, because the programs are all accredited and students are protected because they must receive an evaluation within 45 days. So um, the students are most protected in that kind of a program. Um, Other programs of CPE don't have those kinds of protections for students. So it's the the students are the um, the most respected in that kind of a program. So that's my My advice, my opinion, I offer it to you. Um, So that's the individual um, who brings him or herself to the caregiving situation. Um, And healing happens in relationship. It's not like you're a blank slate, you know, walking into the patient's room and you say, I leave myself at the door, and all my attitudes, values, and assumptions, they're all at the door, and I'm merely a blank slate, and I'm just a presence here to love you, you know, it's like, no, you are bringing yourself to the patient, you know, healing happens in relationship, you're a person, you know, yes, um, you know, it's you that comes to this patient, you know, you're not a (laughs) non-entity, Healing happens in relationship. You know, you bring yourself to this patient. So, um, and you're a gift to this person, you know, a, a unique human being, a warm person. You know. uh, in the medical school, it used to be that they were taught to kind of be uh, this professional white coat, you know, that walks into the room, but that's not taught any longer, you'll be happy to hear. (laughs) Not at UCSF Medical School, which is one of the top in the nation, Um, and I I don't think it's taught many places anymore. Um, There may be some older mentors that are still kind of of that mindset, and It's true that empathy still, the studies prove that empathy decreases as students continue in medical school. That is still true because of the mindset, the culture is so fast-paced that um, as their head fills with scientific knowledge, (laughs) they become more and more reliant upon science and their ability to communicate and empathize decreases as time goes on. And that is still true. That is still true in medical school. Now, I have not graduated from medical school. I'm still in it. (laughs) I keep saying that. (laughs) I keep learning, but I have not graduated from medical school. Um, I just keep teaching in it. But um, I keep trying to help people maintain their humanity and their empathy because I think that is so key. And soon, we will have... An abundance of doctors. We will have more and more choice of doctors because there will be too many doctors. (laughs) The field is ripening with doctors, and we will have more and more choice about our doctors. That means (laughs) that those without empathy are going to drop by the wayside. We'll have more choice about that. We'll have choices about skill, (laughs) you know, So the very highly skilled ones, maybe you will still want to go to despite their bedside manner, but for family practice and things like that, we're going to have choices about who we go to. And it's very important (laughs) about the healing that happens in relationship. Um, So that, I think, is a gift that chaplaincy brings, to remember that the healing happens between you and the patient you and the person in front of you. Um, and the training in training, we look at that relationship between you and the person in front of you. And that's why we have models to look at, too, because we can take a look at that relationship and kind of explore that and see how that's going. Okay. Let's take a look at the model on the handout that you have. If I were to ask all of you, and people who are familiar with the model, there are some of you here in this room. Does everybody have a hand up? Good. Um, If I were to ask you, um, what do you think are spiritual needs of persons? No matter where they are, what country, what race, what culture... And you were to just pop out words uh, what you think are deep spiritual needs of persons. To be seen. To be seen. Okay. To be heard and recognized for heard themselves. Heard and recognized for themselves. Okay. Find meaning. Meaning. Respect. Mm-hmm. Pardon? Respect. Respect. Okay. Connected. Connected. Other things? As pain-free as possible. Pain-free. As possible, okay. Sometimes forgiveness or the possibility of forgiveness. Okay. Connection. Connection. Okay. To be valued. Valued. Uh, mm-hmm. Fed. Pardon? To be fed. Fed. Food. Mm-hmm. Food water. hmm Mm-hmm. So let's say that some of those basic needs are met. You know, you think of Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, food, uh, shelter, clothing, the basics. To have as much self-agency as I can. Okay, self-agency. To grow. To keep growing. Mm-hmm. Okay. To love and to be loved, okay? Okay. So connection, I would put in the category of, you know, like belonging to community or to love and to be loved. You said meaning over here. Yes. So there's it that is that one category. Um, someone else said to be valued. I would say that that belongs in the self-worth, to feel a sense of self-worth of value. Um, someone said forgiveness, and I put that in the reconciliation to love and to be loved. Any s- spiritual assessment model takes all the things that you might think of and puts them into categories. So there is a m- in terms of spiritual assessment models, there are a lot of models, and some of them have a lot of categories. Like there is a model by George Fichette that has a 7 by 7 model, so that's 49 categories. So that takes a long time to learn, right? <laughs> very complicated. If you go to the CP Center down in San Diego um, at uh, Sharp, you learn that model. It's, it takes a year. <laughs> 49 categories, very complex. Um, Rush Presbyterian in Chicago teaches that one too. So really big model. Some teach um, you know, that there are 25 characteristics, um, hope, despair, you know, and the chaplain's job is all these different, you know, peace, war, conflict. Um, and the chaplain's job is to move people from conflict to peace, despair to hope. They don't exactly say how, by the way. Oops, sorry. Um, but that's the general gist of it. So they assess, you know, the patients on the basis of these adjectives, and you're supposed to move them from one to the other. Um, But there are categories usually where people lump these things together. And the categories in this model are three. So you've got them across the top of the page. Meaning and direction. Self-worth and belonging to community. And reconciliation to love and be loved. So um, basically you're taking some of these things that you've mentioned and putting them in the different categories. Things that seem to make sense if you put them together. If We had a different format. I would take a you know write all the things that you had said without handing you this first and put them on a board and then categorize them for for you and then hand this out. But we didn't do that today to save time. And the assessment you make by being in relationship with a person and having a normal conversation. So you don't walk in and have 20 questions for the person. We don't approach people with a survey. Normally That's not how you have a conversation with someone anyway. That's not how you create relationship with a person. You hear common phrases. So a person who's expressing in a crisis, usually one of these core needs kind of pops out more strongly than another. And it's a core spiritual need of the person. Um, So if a person is... Is in the midst of a conversation asking a lot of questions about meaning and direction in their life. Um, they may be wondering about why this is happening. They may be asking questions about trying to make meaning of this stage of their life. They may be struggling with a question and posing that. Look down the column there on the left. You may be observing them having difficulty making decisions, being concerned about meaning. They might be exploring a lot of possibilities about something. Um, And (laughs) they may be delighted about this or quite puzzled about this. They may be kind of lost in a fog about this. You may have some kind of gut reaction to this person. Maybe you like exploring questions of meaning with people. Maybe you like entertaining existential possibilities. (laughs) Maybe you don't. Maybe you feel kind of lost in a fog with them. Now there are two parts to this. When you're working with someone, you may feel like there's a part about being with that person. What do you embody? Who are you to them? And then what are you doing with them? The first part is being. What is your embodiment with the person? And when I think of embodiment, I really think about um, as a follower of Jesus, he was incarnate. (laughs) He was embodied. Um, And when he worked with people, (laughs) when he was with people, he was kind of a spiritual guide to them. And you may think of your teacher as being a guide to you, in terms of asking you questions. Um, And when when Jesus worked with people like this, he asked them questions. When he saw people that were you know, at a crossroads and trying to figure things out, he asked a lot of questions with people like this. And so if you think about spiritual direction in the Christian tradition, or maybe you think about your teacher, if you are a person that is kind of like this, um, and there's a process implied in terms of this intervention. Now, I'm not going to go through this whole process, but you could think of this as a process of healing Um, these are interventions, this is a process that you might go through with a patient or a client or a person in front of you. Um, And maybe the person in front of you is not at the very beginning of this process, maybe they're in the middle, or maybe they're toward the end. But that's kind of a path toward healing or wholeness. And if you turn it over, you might say, what would healing look like for this person? What would a desired outcome look like? And we've tried to kind of spell that out. What would the outcome look like? Now, it's not to say that we're trying to push people toward this. But if we were to imagine what what would a person whose path is meaning and direction, but is very enlightened, (laughs) what would enlightenment look like for a person whose path is about meaning and direction? What would a person who, whose core path is about healing and meaning and direction look like if they had attained that? What would they look like? And we tried to describe that. So if a patient came to you, or you came to a patient, who began with asking a lot of questions of meaning and direction, and in their interaction with you really did resolve some of those questions, what would it look like? And that's the desired outcome. Likewise, with questions of self-worth and belonging to community, same thing. You embody a valuer, a person who embodies community. You're affirming that person, valuing them, listening carefully to their story. And you're going through this process with them. And lastly, You're embodying a truth-teller with a person who needs reconciliation. This person may present with broken relationships and really need to take some responsibility to work through those broken relationships. And we may think of this approach as being one of tough love. Rather, someone who needs to really be um, challenged, maybe confronted with what might be the truth you know, and to really take a look at their relationships where they are broken and take some responsibility, himself, herself, to take some action, to actually look at their own part. Um, So let me give an example of that. Um, I was in the emergency department and a man was having a heart attack. He, um, you know, it wasn't the kind of, like, Throwing up, and gripping his chest, and falling on the floor—kind of heart attack. His his monitor was showing an irregular heartbeat. He had already been through kind of the worst, um, but he had been stabilized. Nonetheless, you know, uh, he was still working on his laptop. He was uh, he was dictating something to his assistant. He had his telephone in his hand. And um, when I came in, um, I addressed him, and the nurse came in shortly afterward, and she took away his phone and his laptop and sent the assistant away. And I said, uh, I said, Seems like you're pretty busy. (laughs) Because I have a keen eye for the obvious. (laughs) It's one of my gifts. And he said... He said, yeah, yeah, I'm under a lot of stress. (laughs) So I said, no kidding, no kidding. So he said, um, I said, well, you know, did that bring this on? He said, yeah, yeah, it's really related. I said, how so? He said, well, I'm having an affair. I said, really? Yeah, yeah, I'm... I'm married and I'm having an affair. I said, you look like you feel bad about that. He said, yeah, I do. I do feel bad about that. I said, really? You want to you tell me more about that? He said, yeah, I, I, um, I think I'm having a heart attack because of that. I said, well, it could be very well be related. He said, I, uh, I think so. I think so. I'm under a lot of stress. And he began to tell me about his affair and that he needed to stop that. He wanted to reconcile with his wife. Um, now, it's kind of interesting. He, he never even asked my name. He knew I was the chaplain. He didn't care what faith tradition I belonged to. Um, so it was what I embodied, right? Right. I embodied a chaplain. So obviously it wasn't Michelle. It wasn't about Michelle walking in the room. It was about the embodiment of a chaplain that walked in the room. I symbolized something to him. I embodied something to him. Because he hadn't told the nurse that. He hadn't engaged with the doctor yet. I mean, they had bopped in and um, given him some medication. and treated him already and bopped out, right? But they hadn't had a long conversation. But he was opening up to me. Now, was he at the beginning of this process down here under interventions? No. Um, But he was down at the fourth bullet point, no, fifth bullet point where I was seeing if he was truly contrite and sorry. Yeah. He was already down there at the fifth bullet point in terms of the interventions. I didn't have to call him to confession. Now, that's a particularly Christian word, by the way. So, I mean, you could, you could look at this and go, okay, what's, what's a Buddhist parallel? Hmm. Is there Buddhist language that I would use around that? I don't know. Confession? confession? Absolutely. So it would be a confession. Okay, so you would use the same terminology. Okay. So he was confessing already. And to me, it sounded like he was pretty contrite. And I was ready to sit there with him in it. I was standing, he was lying down. But I was ready to stand there with him. Because that was good pain to be in. Emotional pain. That was good for him to be there. Because that was going to motivate him to take some action. I was not ready to jump in like many chaplains would make the mistake, I think, right then, of jumping in and pronouncing God's forgiveness. It was like, no, that was a time to let him really consider what he was needing to do about that. Because it was going to need to be some changed behavior, you know. Now, they had him stabilized, so I wasn't really worried about him keeling over at that moment. <laughs> you know, so, um, you know, and they would have rushed in and treated him some more. I mean, he was in good hands right there. But um, he was going to need to take action to do something different with his life, you know, and this was a turning point, you know. So that, there's an example. That's, that's an example right there of that process. So does this make sense? So it's a process. It's a process. And the outcome looks on, that on the other side, where the person realizes that their behavior has an impact on other people. So I would want to continue that conversation and talk about how his behavior impacted his marriage, how it impacted his wife, get him to spend some time thinking about how this, was going, how this had impacted his relationship with his wife. That would help with the contrition, wouldn't it? Ooh, sit with that for a little while. Um, and the person confesses their part in the conflict, broken relationship, expresses true remorse, commits to new behavior, new behavior, and express may experience forgiveness from others and God. Maybe he didn't believe in God. That's a possibility. Sure, I'm not there to convert him to believing in God. So um this is a model, um, and this is this is actually what we teach, you know, at least in three months <laughs> at u c s f. so you're not going to get you know the full scoop in fifteen minutes or less here. Yes. Ooh, we'll have to play the tape and see. <laughs> Does anybody remember? I don't, sorry. Oh, sorry. Sorry. We'll have to play the tape. <laughs> yes. So basically, I'm going to carry this model inside of myself to use in, a, in an appropriate situation. Yes, I would use that. and This would be like a template I'd have in my head. And with beginners, I usually think about, just think about being a guide or just think about being a valuer and a firmer with a person that you assess to be low self-worth or belonging to community. We all have these three needs inside us. And when you're working with a person in a crisis, one pops out most, most clearly. When I'm working with a person in need of reconciliation, I think about being a truth teller and asking them to take some responsibility. So... I think about my embodiment first with beginners, and that usually helps me kind of set a mindset for how I'm going to work with that person. Then, as people move along, you know, and begin to work with a group in terms of identifying where the person is in their process and how they're doing their interventions and where the how they're working out, you know, the uh, the process. Then we work with them about how they're actually implementing these interventions. Yes? You made the statement, start with my embodiment. Yes, yes. Talk the Im- about that a little more. Well, how am I being a spiritual guide to this person? How am I helping them come to their own... Um, Uh, For a meaning and direction person, for a person that's expressing questions of meaning, how am I helping them to come to their own answers? How am I helping them to discern their heart's desire? Not telling them what to do. How am I helping them to discern their own path? You know, for the person of low self-worth and needing valuing, how am I embodying the person who affirms and values them? For the person who is um, in need of reconciliation, how am I embodying a mirror for them and helping them to come to some, uh, helping to tell the truth to them um, in a way that they can hear it? How, how can I be a person who offers kind of a tough love approach to them without alienating them, if I can help it? Yeah. OK. Um, Let me just say a bit about research. Um, So the research that we're doing on this, which is really exciting, um, is called the Spiritual AIM study. And um, if you notice, spiritual assessment and intervention model is spiritual aim. How clever. I did not think of that. (laughs) That is not my doing. Somebody else thought of that. Um, Someone else that works in our department. And um, so three of us, uh, chaplains, are actually working with 10 patients each, and we're spending three sessions with them. Um, Each of the the 30 patients is in the process of dying from cancer, metastatic cancer, and they are outpatients. They're being followed by our um, symptom management service, which is a palliative care service for outpatients at UCSF, um, part of the Mount Zion um, Hospital. And um, we're, uh, they, have been, they have signed up for this study. They received this little flyer about it. And um, they don't have to identify as spiritual or religious. Um, They have said that they are wanting some extra emotional support or sense of community. Here the core need. They're asking questions related to meaning and values. Or they're interested in exploring forgiveness or reconciliation in their relationships. See, those are the core needs, right? So they all have advanced cancer. They're willing to meet individually with a chaplain over the phone or in person at least three times. And they're willing to have these sessions with a chaplain audiotaped for the purpose of the study. So we're recording each of these. And then we're getting them transcribed. And then the research team is getting together to discuss them. Um, and then the patients themselves are doing some um, tests, pre- and post-tests. And these are uh, validated tests. Um, They're multiple choice kinds of questions. So people circle, you know, like numbers, one through five. And the questions all have to do um, their scales. And they all have to do with um, answering questions about their um, personal satisfaction with their uh, sense of community around them, their sense of spiritual well-being. Um, their sense of purpose in life, meaning, um, happiness, connection with a higher power, um, whether they're happy with their meditation practice. I mean, it's just huge numbers of questions, basically. It takes about a half an hour to answer all these different scales. So it's what's called a mixed method study. Part of it is qualitative, meaning um, we describe what happens between them and the, the chaplain. Other people describe that, not the chaplains. And then the um, part of it is quantitative, which is these studies that have been validated, the, um, the interview questions. So that's the quantitative piece of it. And it'll be suggestive of future research. So it's all meant to describe how effective the spiritual care actually is. So why is this important? Clearly, it's very difficult to describe what spiritual care is. It's always been difficult, right? I mean, to say what we do is really important. We all know that it's important, but it's kind of like, how do you describe what love is? <laughs> you know? And so this is an attempt to describe, this model is an attempt to describe what it is that we do. So why was it chosen to... St- for a Templeton grant. Um, (laughs) um, Out of 72 studies, six were selected to get $250,000 for a study. Um, This was the first time spiritual care received any kind of grants. (laughs) That's kind of interesting in itself, right? (laughs) So why was it selected? It was the only study that was selected um, on the basis of studying an actual model that describes what it is that we do. So this is it. Nobody else put down on paper what it is that we do in such a thorough fashion. That's kind of interesting. So you can disagree with the model, which a lot of people do, but nobody else actually wrote down what it is that we do. (laughs) And said, okay, let's try this. (laughs) And so... um, You know, I think we may learn that some of this works and some of this doesn't. But we're just putting it out there to go, okay, let's see if this works. You know? Because everybody does their own thing in spiritual care, right? I mean, and says, okay, I do this and I do this. And I say, well, I have a kind of an eclectic model. You know, if I had a nickel for every time I've heard that (laughs) in 31 years, I would just be rich, 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 rich. (laughs) But I'm not. <clears throat> so um, this is the first time it's actually, you know, there's a model and it's being studied. you know. So, um, so that's the cool thing. And the idea is to say, well, it's worth having something to study and to prove to somebody, you know, who has money in these organizations like hospital administration that we add value. Because... They're willing to give people, to put money toward pharmaceuticals, right, that do good things for people. And if we can prove that spiritual care really improves patient satisfaction, then that would be worth a lot of money, wouldn't it? Why? Because hospitals get paid on the basis of patient satisfaction. Did you know that? No. You didn't know that. Hospitals are reimbursed on the basis of how much patients like them. They're actually reimbursed now on the basis of patient satisfaction. So if... Is that why they cook the way they do? No, but food, they're gonna pay more attention to food in the future because this new uh, type of survey, is is what it's called, you probably don't even want to know the name of it, <clears throat> is, is now influencing how much reimbursement hospitals get. So I won't even bother to tell you what, what the actual acronym stands for. But <clears throat> they are being reimbursed on the basis of how much we can move patient satisfaction up. And so if, if chaplains can influence that patient satisfaction, which we can, you know, then, and we can prove it with research, then they will go after it. They will pay for more chaplains. Which, if anybody's interested in getting hired, this matters, right? (laughs) This does matter. Now, I'm an administrator. I'm interested in hiring more chaplains because I'm a chaplain administrator. I'm a spiritual care person. So I want to hire more people. So I'm interested in this. So I'm doing research also, okay? So that's why I'm doing research. And this is all hospitals, and how long has that been happening? That they- HCAPs? Yeah. Uh, just since last January, but it's just going into effect now. Yeah. Yes. One yes. Has, one has to ask the question, is there a political motivation behind this? Is this likely to change, for instance? It's only going to get more this way. Another administration gets in that has a different point of view about Obamacare, for instance. It's going to get more so if the Republicans are in charge. Okay. Yeah. But it's, it's happening now anyway. It's only going to get more so. It's going to get more so anyway. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. It's just going to get more so. I, I think probably no matter who's in charge, it's going to get more so. Yeah. It's just headed that way more and more. As, as health care goes on, it's just going to get more so. That's the future. <laughs> Is this actually legislated or regulatory? Yeah, okay. it's regulatory. Yeah. On the federal level. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pardon? Medicare, okay. Medicare. Yeah, and it's part of how the um, how it's regulated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's huge, and it's getting larger. It's it's getting larger. Yes. Is the spiritual aim model? Is it already being done now? Mm-hmm. And yeah. Do, do those patients ask for feedback? Or are you just in the beginning? Explain to them why this is it being done as a model. Oh, they don't even notice. Don't, okay. This is just how we work. The template's in our head. Yeah. done with you or anything no no the the oh patient satisfaction surveys are actually done by hospitals they hire companies to do the patient satisfaction surveys and um, like they our company is called uh, Press Ganey it's a national company it does most of the hospitals in the country um, it's the largest anyway and um, they come in the mail if you've ever been hospitalized they come in the mail and people fill them out or not yeah Oh, that model? Yeah, your yeah, yeah. The, research. Your, the research sample that you're actually giving a pre and post test to. Oh, the pre and post test. Yeah, oh, that's we have a research assistant that administers the test to the patients. Pre and post, she does it right there in a half an hour. She collects hands out the test to the people. They they do it right there. She collects the test before the before the interview with the chaplain. And then at the end of it all she meets with them again and gives the tests. Yeah, that's that's not a that doesn't have to do with patient satisfaction. That's the that the patient satisfaction stuff that we're talking about now is at the hospital level. <coughs> Sorry, that was about the research. I have a question about your model. Sure. Um, I was informed by your story about this man who opened to you and shared some very intimate um, information. Yeah. Yeah. Which would be a postural um big difference right. in power. hmm Um and when I was looking to to your sheet there about being a truth teller and a prophet, the languaging is also ha- has a power differential. Right. For your mm-hmm well the trauma bay in the emergency department has no chairs so that's really clear <laughs> that's easily answered <laughs> so um, <clears throat> the um, but the uh, the issue of inequality so the um, in the in this th- one of the theories about reconciliation so this person, yeah. Normally, the, when the person is at the early stages of you know, other blaming you know, and not seeing their responsibility, they would be kind of like looking down on other people. And so if you were the truth teller, you might want to take a very a stance that would be equivalent to them, rather than down here. It would be kind of hard. It's it is hard, I think, sometimes to be a truth teller that's from below. <laughs> so you may want to take uh, a stance as a truth teller that really kind of meets them where they're at, you know, which would not be a real humble posture, you know. It would kind of meet their energy, you know. You might want to pump it up a little bit. Um, So I'm thinking matching the other person's energy. Now, that would not be a real quiet, calm presence. That would be more of an energetic presence. I don't know that that as- answers your question exactly. So I might not choose to have a very equalitarian kind of quiet, calm presence that meets them at their level, you know. <laughs> um just something to think about. Because um, a lot of the reconciliation people at the beginning of their process are really, you know, I am, you know, looking out for number one. And I just sent that awful nurse out of the room, you know. So I would want to match that energy. I would not want to be, you know, oh, I am here to serve you. You know, <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, the image of, I don't know which, you know, you know the image of the Bodhisattva with the sword? There you go. You know who it is. Yeah, that's more of the energy that I'm talking about, you know? Can somebody say the name into the microphone so whoever's listening knows what we're talking about? tree. Thank you. That's the energy I'm talking about. Yes, to confront the the reconciliation dynamic. Okay. See, it needs translation. Yes. Um, I suppose this is. I'm going to ask. I suppose this is um, as much a matter of experience and skill as anything, but how yeah. do you avoid the danger of, essentially, of, of manipulating rather than eliciting something that's, that's actually uh, emerging? Well, it's about relationship. You know, I think it's, it's an art, you know, and there's always a danger of, of messing up a relationship. It's true. We all make mistakes. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not too cautious. <laughs> you know? It's a matter of judgment and sometimes taking some risks. Oh, yeah, yeah. Risk. There's a lot of risk. Yeah. You have to green light on. Yeah, there's a lot of risk to relationship. Yeah. Um, I'm going to move on just because this, uh, this is a lovely topic. I love spiritual assessment and an intervention, as you can tell, but I do uh, want to go forward. So let me just, um, how much, where do we go to, f- what time? Um, about 3.45. 3.45, okay. Let's go, ooh, um, let's go quickly through this. <laughs> <laughs> this is about integrating into the hospital um, setting. So let's go quickly. So this is just um, the collateral that you might have seen. Um, yeah, let's, the, you might have picked up, this is our comfort and support card, which we do in four languages um, for people that are in the hospital. Um, oops, I am standing in my own way, sorry about that. Um, I don't want to stand in your way. Um, so yeah, the top four languages, Chinese, Spanish, Russian, and English. Next. Um, I just want to say about this that um, I don't have my stuff with me. We're in house 24-7 because that's when people are hurting. And um, obviously we do healing because we think that it's beyond the physical. Um, we do have a clinical pastoral education program, but our teaching goes beyond that to staff and to the med school and the nursing school and even to the pharmacy school. Um, we do, we're doing another research project right now as well, and that is to the pediatric oncology because we've had to um, resuscitate a couple of children that should not have been resuscitated Um, And they died anyway. So we're doing a research project um, to inform pediatric oncologists how to better have conversations with parents when children have remissions, um, have uh, reoccurrences of oncology, um, cancer reoccurrences, so that they will have an easier time of having conversations with um, parents when they bring their children back to the hospital for further treatment, code conversations, conversations about resuscitation and do not resuscitate because we don't want people to have inappropriate resuscitations when children would have more suffering. And those people are reticent to have those conversations. So um, we did massive quantities of research on how to have those conversations and then presented the language to the oncologists in the most humble way we could possibly do it. Matching their energy, Matching their energy. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, it, and we got a physician to present it to the physicians. So that was the strategy. Anyway, so that, that's the other oncology, that's the other project that we've been doing and we're presenting that work in Hong Kong in um, uh, October of um, 2013 to an international audience. So that's really cool. Okay. And I'll be in Hong Kong doing the PowerPoint. (laughs) We'll bring Bill for that. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay, and who we are. We have um, chaplains of all these different stripes, Buddhist, Jewish, Protestant, Catholic, and Muslim. We have 16 students right now, three CPE supervisors, um, Jewish, Buddhist, Baptist, and me. Um, One is... Japanese American and I'm Native American and Caucasian Um, We have a full-time pediatric chaplain. We have a full-time Music is good medicine chaplain that's bringing music through volunteers to the bedside of patients and we have our administrative analyst and we have um, three Catholic priests under contract who are not employees and we have um, a part-time palliative care chaplain Dina Joseph who you should know She is ordained here, from here. And we have lots of wonderful um, graduated students. And Bill is one of them, and Judy. And there are some others, too. So, okay. Let's move on. Um, I did want to share a a story for you um, from one of the student chaplains about what the work is that we do. Um, This was about the death of a Hindu boy, Um, on our pediatric oncology, and they were making keepsakes for the family, um, handprints in blue paint. The social worker, Amy, held his right hand out, the little boy that died, palm up, and a nurse, Janelle, painted it bright, deep blue. Blue paint on brown skin is beautiful, I thought, the chaplain wrote. She had trouble with the paint because his fingers wanted to curl inward to make a limp fist. I held the paper steady as they pressed the painted hand down to leave its mark. The girls had to stretch his fingers out to get a clean print. It was also gentle though, no one said a word. They lifted his hand from the paper. There was the blue handprint. At first I thought it was a childish idea, embarrassing. He was 15 years old and smart. I wondered if he would have been embarrassed. But in an entirely selfish way, I'm glad glad Janelle asked, and I'm glad his mom said yes. The women worked so well together, neither of them said a word. Each knew exactly what to do. It was a relief to focus on them. Everyone watched, and everyone was relieved. They started now to clean the paint from his right hand, first wiping it with coarse white paper towels and then with white washcloths wet from the sink across the room, I took each soiled towel and dropped it in an ugly pink plastic basin on the floor. Paper and cloth stained blue and silently kicked beneath the sink. I stood by the sink, warm water running, and ran each new white cloth beneath the sink. I had a stack of them. I wrung each one out and handed it to be used to make him clean again. Eventually I too stooped over the bedside to help make him clean, six white wet hands holding and washing the blue from the brown-handed boy, silent and washing. We cleaned his nails with a blue brush and soap and a little blue plastic pick. Every piece of blue we washed away. It took a very long time, everyone so intent and quiet. Have you ever been lost in a task full of pure pleasure? In another time, I thought his ancestors would have washed him in a river and burnt him on a pyre by its shore until there was nothing left but char, to be blown by the wind across the water. In another time, his ancestors might have rubbed his body with red ochre, laid him on his side in a cave, and covered him in flower petals. In another time, there would be women of the village wailing, covering their heads in dust, children at their feet howling to be fed. In another time, we would know how to feel, and we would feel it. In another time, more ancient, we would know there are no words of consolation or remembering. In another time, our stomachs would churn until we spit at death all the bile that our fear and rage had conjured. We would spit in the dust of the earth to make a mud of our grief and stupid wondering. We would howl on hands and knees, crashing rocks on the ground to make the earth a drum and beat it merciless, mercilessly for taking our son. We would pound our fists and bring up clouds of brown dust to cover our heads so we could not be seen or see. We would scream until we were spent, and then we would sleep there in the dirt, mouths caked with the earth, which had taken him back to herself. Instead, I lay his hands across his chest and cover them over with a white cotton sheet. It is all we have left. It is all we have allowed ourselves to do. So, that is the type of work that we do. I'm gonna move on to something much more mundane. Go ahead. Um, we, um, we see a lot of people. We visit, out of um, about 550 people, we visit very extensively. Um, and we chart that because that's how we communicate that to administration. So this is a chart from another year um, that's over, but um, that's how we, we actually visit very extensively and give out those initial visit cards. <clears throat> Again. Um, and you can see the, the core needs there. Okay. For new people, we, you know, we, a lot of our coverage is done by students, and so we actually do have a scripting booklet just in the beginning to help people kind of get up to speed with um, dealing with people that are really angry and learning how to de-escalate them, because some of that is pretty tricky. And when people complain, how do you work with people when they complain? Um, and how do you learn to use the language of patient satisfaction because people are going to get questionnaires when they go home and they're not going to recognize, you know, that you were the chaplain visiting them. (laughs) So how do you use some of the language that they're going to get in questionnaires? Next one. Um, We give away, we've sent out sympathy cards to families after their loved ones die in the hospital because we're frequently called to attend patient deaths. And so we have met, Many of the families in the middle of the night say, when people have died, and so we send out cards, and everybody in our department signs them because we spend a moment um, of recognition for those people who have passed away. And we do that at morning report. So we read the list of names of people who have passed away, and then we read the list of names and ring a, a Buddhist bell of people who have been born. So everybody that has died the last day, And everybody who has been born and so we recognize that and so we sign the cards and mail them out. We do teach uh, mindfulness based medicine, uh, (laughs) mindfulness based uh, meditation and we do teach guided meditation and um, we give away a little meditation CD. Um, There's a, uh, we do for stress reduction, pain reduction, um, and then we do, at a mental health facility that's at our hospital, Linley Porter, um, we do individual work and with groups. Pass that along. Um, we do work with staff. We bring in a labyrinth for Staff Appreciation Day. We do a blessing of hands. That's what you see there <laughs> for people. And I had some hand blessing cards there um, out there. Next. I wanted to mention this code blue debriefing thing. We do critical instant stress debriefing for people, um, which is code blues are resuscitation attempts, and uh, we began the program when uh, a resident complained that several different residents were really upset about the death of a young person, an 18-year-old who was scheduled to go home that day and suddenly uh, experienced respiratory failure and died. And they were thinking about it a long time afterwards and talking about it among themselves and didn't really have a place to talk about it. So we decided, since I had taken the, uh, this critical instance stress debriefing course from the Red Cross, we decided we would have the chaplains attend the Code Blues. We just started showing up at them. Uh, <laughs> I just phoned the operator, the head of the operators, and said, we want to get called on this pager when there's a code. We started going to them, just showing up. And, um, and we started offering debriefings, two days later, five o'clock, just emailing everybody at the code that we could collect their names. And we started having these debriefings. So years later, we've had 400 people show up at those as voluntarily. And the chaplains lead those. The next slide. Non-code blues. Um, So as a result of that, people said, you know, we have a lot of crises happen, but they're not codes. Can you offer debriefings for those? These have become even more popular. 659 people have attended those types of debriefings. These have been like deaths of employees, or um, let's say a two-year-old comes into the emergency department and and dies. A lot of the nurses in the emergency department have children that age. And so um, they were upset we had a debriefing. So we've had a lot of those types of debriefings, too. The chaplains also offer a lot of classes on these topics and more. Um, because we consider it an extension of our clinical pastoral education. We have so many educational presentations that we just offer a lot. So we we consider this part of our outreach. So we're really integrated into the hospital by being able to offer all these things. And so um, let's go forward. Um, We survey the hospital to see how our services are going over. And then we see what the weaknesses are, and we try to address those things. And so we have enlarged our, pro- our presence in the hospital by doing that kind of thing. We created a uh, conflict resolution line because we're good at resolving conflicts between people. We're good at conflict resolution, so we decided we would offer that service to people. And then we um, promoted a uh, program of music by the bedside, which is going to be on television, um, on NBC, the local affiliate here, uh, coming from San Jose, um, this Thursday at 515, and it's also going to be on the internet, um, Bay Area Proud, www.bayareaproud.com, um, so you can watch that at your leisure. I imagine he posted a couple of days later. So it's um, Garvin Thomas, he does nice news stories. So um, it's four minutes long. It'll feature one of our um, nice Music is Good Medicine volunteers. And the idea is to have music at the bedside for patients. So it's all volunteers. And then our staff chaplain who provides music at the bedside, she organizes the um, 30 to 40 volunteers that we have, some of them professional musicians who come and offer their time to play music. Little mini concerts at the bedside, which is a really nice thing to be able to offer. And then we have a top 10 guide to um, staff as to when to call a chaplain because we had to advertise to people when we wanted to be called all the different times when we wanted to be called so we created this top 10 reasons to call a chaplain go ahead and give them all 10 if you would so you can see the variety of things that we shamelessly self-aggrandizingly promote so that people will um, call upon us And we have one pager number for everybody, so that nobody can forget us. And it's the same prefix as everybody, and then care, so that nobody can forget. They can always reach a chaplain. The point of all this is that it looks self-aggrandizing as a department, but the point is to try to be integrated as much as possible and to be the kind of the jack of all trades that you can get us for. And that way, if you cover more territory, you can become more indispensable and hire more people. That's the strategy. Get more chaplains out there. Now, in religious hospitals, there are many more chaplains than social workers. In non-religious hospitals, there are more social workers than chaplains. So they always overlap. But my theory is that if you are very clear about your identity, you can have you can overlap with other, other departments, and it doesn't matter. People are not threatened <laughs> if you're very clear about your own center. But if, if people are unclear about their identity, then they feel threatened. So we are very clear about our identity and our presence. We're very well established. But if people, other departments are unclear about their identity, they will be threatened by that. Yes? We don't announce what tradition we are. Yeah, if people want to know, we let them know, but we don't really announce that. Yeah, because like the guy in the emergency department, he didn't really care, you know. So it's it's not really a, a, an issue for most people. Um, oh, if they want to know, sure, I'm not secretive. If they have a particular request, then we'll match that. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, sure. We'll get them whatever they want, and if we don't have that on staff, we have access to people in the community. Sure. Um, We do advanced directives on call um, at night and on the weekends. Um, During the daytime, that's a function of social work. But we do that because, you know, once again, it's like we'll do anything, you know, in order to increase our visibility and to be the servant to everyone. Okay. And why don't we skip to the social media page. We have developed a social media presence once again to try to communicate with staff. So we're on Twitter, if anybody's on Twitter. And you can see all of our social media presence there. Now, we're probably one of the first hospitals in the country to have that much of a social media presence. But the point is, once again, to communicate with staff. And many young staff are on uh, these these social media services. Let's go back to the social media, please. Are we going to see their faces? Part? Will we see their faces? The faces of the staff? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. And you can actually watch a video there media. below. One more more. Yeah, there. Thank you. Yeah. If you could blow that up again. Oh. I can add, I can add no. That that's fine. Um, If you go to that, you will see our, if you go to our website, hmm, yeah, if you go to the, yeah, that one, I don't, whoops, I'm in the way again. If you go to the blog, you can join, you can find, if you go to the blog, you will easily get to YouTube, you can click on the YouTube thing, you can also, um, join Facebook or Twitter from there. And the YouTube actually shows you a video of Music is Good Medicine, which is a lovely um, video, by the way, of music at the bedside. He keeps going away from it. Let's see. I don't know. It's so hard to control, Bill. <laughs> so, I have a real problem with controlling people. It just doesn't work. So... <laughs> well you, you have to be amenable You know for a, a very long period of time Until October 2013 yeah, I'm open. Okay Okay That's good Okay So there we go So that's that's that And I guess my time has run out I haven't gotten to the other points Ah Well What do you think, Bill? What have you, what else are you doing? Um, how you all feeling? Does anybody need a stretch break? What? You need a break. need a break. Yeah, you need a break. Do we want to do like a, are you open for, do we do a uh, five-minute break and then come back? Yeah. Okay. I'm open. Okay, so I'm pausing this. Oh, I oh, can okay. pause. Mundane question. Sure. The comment Oops. about standing, I'm going to start doing it working at Dominican Hospital. And i yeah. oh, mm-hmm. a bit with the chaplain. I can't stand for long periods of time. I have foot surgery, foot glue surgery on. Do they usually have, I mean, can you usually sit down and talk to a patient when you're doing it? Uh, because I'm not yeah, be going to intensive care. They're not going to send me into those kinds of things. You know, in most regular patients, they can sit down. Are you ready? I think so. Numbers are moving. Okay. Last few minutes. Two more subjects. I want to talk about, just very briefly, the administrative kind of aspect of um, chaplaincy in the hospital. And then lastly, about national organizations. So, um, appreciate your patience. <laughs> I don't have time discipline. I haven't done this uh, conversation before. About administration in the hospital, I think it's, uh, now I'm going to put on my administrator's hat. So I'm, I'm a director in the hospital, which just means that um, in our hospital, we have staff chaplains um, who are employees, and then we have a manager over our CPE program and then I'm at the director level. Um, We have an executive director who is my boss. Her boss reports to the CEO of the hospital. So when you're in a hierarchy like that, you want to report as high up as possible. Um, This is important because in a hierarchy, you wanna have as much power as possible to do good. This makes sense, right? Um, the more power you have to do good, I think just means that you have, you have the power to hire more chaplains, you have more influence in the organization to um, have a larger budget and therefore more ability to have programs to do good for patients that will serve them, patients, families, and the staff, the people that are involved in the organization. Um, You can persuade people to do things that are good within the organization, to do ethical things, for instance. For instance, I serve on the ethics committee. That's not part of the. PowerPoint, for instance, but that's a good thing to be on the ethics committee because I can influence them to think about how people's um, spiritual perspective influences their treatment decisions, which is something that they had not thought about deeply um, before I started speaking up on the ethics committee. When I first got to the ethics committee, I was a little bit concerned about speaking up in a room full of physicians. But I made myself speak at every meeting. I got over that fear after a while. And they got used to my attending every single consultation. A consultation happened when a case came up where they wanted ethical consultation about that particular patient. And I noticed how many times the family's um, religion or spiritual perspective did matter to them and how it influenced how they were deciding about the case. They often wanted to have somebody to discuss their perspective and to hear, you know, what their faith leader might say about, you know, um, their faith in regard to uh, withdrawing life support for instance. Um, and so that was not something the physicians were familiar with but I could look that up for instance or I could bring in a faith leader from that particular faith tradition to work with them on that um, and to do some rituals around that or maybe I knew something about that or somebody from our staff knew something about that. So that became increasingly important on the Ethics Committee, and I made a presentation to the Ethics Committee about that, and, you know, that became increasingly important. So more power in the institution as we grew in visibility. Um, As an administrator, so the higher up you are, the more you can influence the institution for good. Um, Now, as an administrator, you know, we started out with just Um, three employees, we grew to six, um, and I've been able to hire more and more people. Um, We've had a lot of turnover, but that has been intentional. And I've got the team that I really want now. So what do I look for? Those of you who are looking for jobs, I look for um, people who are going to be a team player, um, people with great empathy, humility, (laughs) um, people who have a great willingness to serve, that are going to represent the department well, Obviously I look for people, diversity of background, and that's where being Buddhist really does help you. Um, Because there aren't a lot of Buddhists in the field of chaplaincy yet. So it really does help. There is a great desire to have Buddhist chaplains, especially here in the Bay Area. I can't say that for the Midwest, (laughs) but I can say that for the Bay Area. Um, And I want um, perhaps less important, but people that are low maintenance, (laughs) so um, that means that I don't have to spend a lot of time correcting their behavior, (laughs) Um, people that are cooperative. Um, Hiring-wise, it helps to have people that are competent, so what does competent mean? Um, Certification goes a long way toward uh, proving competence. If I don't know you already, then to know that you are certified goes a long way toward proving competence. So for many people that are in my position, they only look at applicants who are certified. They just don't want to have to discern um, competence for themselves. So I know at Alta Bates, um, they had a position open and they had over 100 applicants for the position and they only selected you know, from among the certified applicants so certification really does matter. The place where certification doesn't matter as much is in hospice. Um, Hospice has not been required uh, as much to hire um, certified people. Hospices, hospitals are a little bit more picky around certification because the Joint Commission has come down heavier on um, hospitals than it has on hospices. However, in the future the Joint Commission which accredits hospitals, um, it is headed in the direction of proving competence through certification. So although right now they um, haven't stipulated that you must have all certified chaplains, they have said you must have all competent chaplains, it's headed down the pike that you're gonna need to be certified. Um, That is, in a couple of years, They may say to all administrators, you need to have all certified chaplains. Right now, it's in writing that you all need to have competent chaplains. And to prove that, you can just prove that as you will. But um, in the future, at any point now, they could say to us, you need to have certified chaplains. And that would mean that any one of us would have to say, okay, I need to let go those of us, those chaplains that are not currently certified. And that would be a really sad thing. So I'm in the midst of getting um, the two that I have right now that are not certified, certified. So they have a deadline (laughs) to get certified. Okay, so, yeah. Does certified mean having a CPE or does it mean a denominational uh, approval? It means certified with a professional organization. So that comes to the next point, which is about professional chaplaincy. Um, one more thing about, um, about administration in hospitals. Um, one thing that I've learned in hospital hierarchy is that the hierarchy's priorities are my priorities. So the same is true for chaplains. <laughs> you may not like the administrator's priorities, um, but they are also your priorities. <laughs> if you would like to remain hired um, or employed, if it's, it's learning to say, if it is important to you, it is important to me. <laughs> now that may not come trippingly to your lips, um, but uh, it's it's a useful thing to learn. Uh, it may take some humility that does not come naturally. Um, But I have learned that this is just kind of the way of working within hierarchies. And um, you may not like hierarchies, but this is the way it is in working within a big hierarchy. And almost all hospitals, I mean, any hospital that I've ever worked at anyway is a hierarchy. So um, that's the way to get along. And... This is the way it is. So it may take some practice of acceptance. Um, So I find that it's useful uh, to uh, approach administration in this manner. Now, there are many things that I don't like about hospital administration, um, but I won't iterate them all here. And um, I work with a fabulous boss. I have been blessed the last seven years to have a wonderful wonderful boss. So um, she has been incredibly supportive to me, and, and any I'd, crazy idea I've had, she's basically supported all the programs that you've seen. So I'd, I have no complaints whatsoever in regard to my boss. I have a terrific boss, and I like my boss's boss too. So I've had fantastic good fortune um, to create the programs that you've seen. So um, I'm really fortunate in the position that I'm in right now. The national organizations, let me just say, um, there are standards for chaplaincy, um, and that comes through the the Joint Commission. Now, the Joint Commission didn't just come up with the idea that they needed to create standards for chaplaincy. They actually have been, uh, they were pushed to create standards for chaplaincy by the professional chaplaincy organizations. (laughs) Yeah, surprise. So... Um, The National Chaplaincy Organizations are these. The Association of Professional Chaplains. So that would be the body that would certify you. So if you're interested in professional chaplaincy, look at the Association of Professional Chaplains website. That's the body that would certify you. I'm certified by that body, and I sit on the certification committees for that body as well. Um, The Association of Clinical Pastoral Education is um, is the body that that educates. The APC, the Association of Professional Chaplains, is the body that certifies. See, those are two different things. You do need the training, the education side from ACPE, the training, the education, to get certified. APC, certifying body, education body. Those are two different things. Now for Catholics, it's the National Association of Catholic Chaplains. For Jews, it's the National Association of Jewish Chaplains. That's irrelevant to you. Um, So that kind of spells that out. I've mentioned research. Research is really important um, in terms of proving efficacy of spiritual care. And that's at the national level, too. I think that's the other piece of the national level that I would just mention, is that professional research helps us prove nationally um, to other organizations, other national organizations and administrators that we're worth our salt and that the work that we do is significant and important and contributes um, in our field and, con- and has something to say to other fields. The issue is one of translation. How do we translate our language which is theological, philosophical. How do we translate our language in a way that communicates well to other fields? And fields are those things that, um, that communicate and have their own language. <laughs> so um, Buddhism has its own language. Christianity has its own language. And pastoral care, spiritual care, has its own language. Um, but we may have to translate. Our language into language that communicates to healthcare and healthcare professionals. So that's the tricky part. So that's what I wanted to say to you about the national organizations and administration level stuff. Any questions about that? I know it's been a really long afternoon. Okay. Thank you so much for your patience.